Good to be back with you again this uh, Lord's Day. We're going to continue looking at the book of 1 Thessalonians. We're going to actually go back to the passage that we were looking at last week, if you were here, um, and look at that with a different angle as well as draw on the next passage. But just as a heads up, we're going to come back to that second portion of the passage in a few weeks when I return, because there's a lot in this passage that I think is helpful for us to consider uh, as we reflect on this this text together. So you can go ahead and be turning in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, because we're going to be looking at verse 13 of chapter 4 all the way through chapter 5, verse 11. But as you're turning there, I want you to, to think about this question. What hope are you living towards? What hope are you living towards? Perhaps you've heard someone say, or perhaps you've even said this, that, that college is the best years of your life. That's something that my students tell me they hear a lot, that, that their aunts, their uncles, their friends, they, they tell them that college is the best years of their life. And, and people tell them that so that they kind of take advantage of their time in college, where they, they have a lot of freedom and flexibility to focus on themselves, a lot of people around them to be friends with and build community. But the interesting thing is, is that as my students reflect on that, it doesn't lead them to encouragement. It actually leads them to despair. Because as they get to the end of college, they begin to think, well, shoot, the best is now done. What do I have to look forward to? And so that idea that the best years of their life was this this moment in time that they're leaving creates despair. But think about the people that say that. And people are saying this in a well-meaning way. But if someone really believed that, if someone really believed that the best years of their life were their time in college, what does that say about how they view their present life? That they must not like it very much. What does that say about the the life that they see to come, that, that they don't really see much good on the horizon? Which is kind of a sad idea, isn't it, to think that that you're wistful for the years in the past because there's nothing better to come. When I was working as an intern in Mississippi with RUF, my campus minister said something to me that was really helpful. It was a time when I was looking back at my years of college where I had some deep community, where God had been working in my life, where I really enjoyed my time, and I was missing it. But my campus minister said to me, Chuck, it just keeps getting better. I wouldn't go back to my college days for anything. Life keeps getting better. And that was such a great encouragement to me because it helped me to see that that life wasn't behind me and I was just having to despair looking forward. That that the best years hadn't passed, but that the best years still could come. And I needed that hope to encourage me. That is what Paul is doing in this section of 1 Thessalonians. He's trying to bring into the Thessalonians' view the hope that they need to live towards so they can live with joy, not despair. So they can live with joy, not cynicism. And what Paul wants the Thessalonians to see in this section is that for the Christian, the best years are always still to come. Best years are always still to come. Years that will give away into eternity. 
And this gives the Christian the remarkable strength that comes with hope, that keeps us from cynicism, that keeps us from despair, and enables us to abide with joy. And what we're going to do today is reflect upon that dynamic of how for the Christian, they always have joy because they know that hope comes. Hope comes. But with that in mind, let us turn our attention to God's word as I read for us 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, 13 through 5, 11. This is God's word. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourself are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there's peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day... Let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing." The grass withers, the flowers fade, but this, the word of our Lord, stands forever. Let us pray that God might write its truth on our hearts. Father, we thank you that just as you send the rain that we see today and use it to water the ground and then return back, not void, but having done your purpose, so too we pray that this, your word, would enter into our hearts to nourish and sustain them and that as it returns back to you, it will have left our hearts brimming with life. We pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen. When I first got the job to come up and work with REF at NC State, I was up here in Raleigh, and after leaving campus, I drove to Walmart so that I could buy my first NC State t-shirt. This was in February, but I got a short sleeve t-shirt because I knew that I would need it come the summer. And I wanted to go ahead and buy it so that I could start wearing it, so that I could start getting into my blood a love for NC State. 
And when I was there at Walmart, I didn't just get myself a t-shirt. I also bought a, a football, a little football, so that I could bring it home to my son, Charlie, who at the time was three, so that he could start playing with that NC State football, so that he could start getting excited about moving up to Raleigh and working at NC State. My future changed what I loved. And as I began to look forward to this new opportunity, it shifted the way that I was thinking about what I loved, what I wanted to wear, what I wanted to have my son see and think about. Your future impacts your present loves, doesn't it? Think about engaged couples as they count down the days towards the wedding. As that number gets lower and lower, they get more excited. They get more excited about the love, that wedding day, that they will be together for the rest of their life. Or parents who see a coming child on the, the ultrasound, as they see that child growing, they get more and more excited, but more and more in love with this baby that's going to be born. Or perhaps from another perspective, as you approach retirement, you may be pulling out pamphlets about boats or looking online at condos in Florida. I don't know, but that day as it gets closer you get more excited don't you it changes your loves it's even what students see at the end of the year as they look forward to summer to come you don't really want to study do you because your future is shaping your present love and paul wants the christians to understand their future so that 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 hope drives them so that hope impacts the way that they live. That's why he starts this section talking about, I want to tell you this truth about Jesus and his coming again so that you will have hope. He talks about that in verse 13. But even at the end of the passage that I read in verse 8 of chapter 5, he talks again about hope, saying, but since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. Paul is wanting the Thessalonians to see that there's a hope that they have to hold on to, a hope that in a sense they put on their heads so that they remember, a hope that drives them, that shapes the way that they live in the present day. And what is the hope that he holds on to? What is the hope that he wants them to see? The hope that he wants them to see is, is that the destiny of the Christian is to be with Jesus forever. And that's what's so beautiful about verse 14 that we reflected on last week as we reflected upon the idea of grief and death for believers. There Paul says that since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Christians are even so people that our destiny is always tied to Jesus's destiny and that wherever Jesus goes, you will go. I don't know if you were alive or even remember, there was a, a toy doll that was made in the 80s called My Buddy. It was supposed to kind of look like the, the child, and so you could buy it in different shades of skin, shades of hair color. But I remember the commercial distinctly because the commercial refrain was, My Buddy, My Buddy, wherever I go, he goes, My Buddy. And so you could bring along this doll to be your buddy. That, in a sense, is what we are to Jesus. We are his buddy. Wherever he goes, we go. And Paul wants the Christians to understand this because this is the foundation of the hope of the Christian. And so he speaks about this reality in terms of the people that have died. Paul says, God will bring with him, which is Jesus, those who have fallen asleep. 
For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. And then look down at the end of verse 16, and there he says, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Do you see what Paul is saying there? Paul speaks of the coming of the Lord, the day that Jesus returns to this place. And when he does, Paul says, God will bring with him all the believers that have died. And in a sense, they get a front row seat. They get to get first in line. They get to be right there with Jesus the second that he leaves the throne of heaven to come down to this earth. All of them get to go with Jesus. Why? Because where Jesus goes, his people go. And Paul says, just because they may be dead, just because their bodies may be in the grave, doesn't mean that they're going to miss out, doesn't mean that they're going to be left behind. But if Jesus goes somewhere, he brings them with him. And this isn't just true, he says, of those who are dead, but it's true of those that are alive. And this is an interesting thing to me about this passage. Paul says that those who are alive get to go with Jesus too. It says in verse 17, Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Now this isn't um, very practical. If Jesus is coming down to the earth, why would the people that are already on the earth leave the earth to go be with Jesus? To just come back right here. Wouldn't it make sense that, that we could see Jesus coming if we were alive when he returns and just kind of watch the spectacle, get excited, kind of cheer him on like you're at the end of the finish of a race and cheering on someone coming? But Paul says, no, that's not what Jesus wants. The second that he gets to come back here, he's going to take everybody that's his people, alive and dead, and bring them to be with him. Why? Because where Jesus goes, his people go. And he wants his people dead and alive to be with him, even as he returns to this earth, whether their bodies are here or their souls and bodies are here or in heaven, it doesn't matter. He wants his people to always be with him, which is why Paul says, and so we will always be with the Lord. Paul wants the Christians to understand their destiny is to always be with Jesus. If Jesus returns, we return with him. When Jesus comes back, we will be with him. Your destiny is to be with Jesus forever if you are a Christian. And so Paul wants us to understand that this is what gives us hope in this life. This is what gives us confidence in this life. Because your destiny is always to be with Jesus. Now when you lack hope, you lose energy. I was running a half marathon once, and I was trying to keep up with my son, Charlie, who's pretty fast. And I thought, well, at the end, he doesn't have a good finish. He's just a steady guy. He doesn't have a good finish, but I have a good finish. And so I was counting on the last bit of the race to catch up to him. And I round the corner to the, the last like quarter mile, and I look, and it's a huge hill. It's a massive hill. I mean, I don't know why the race planners would even let someone run up on it, more or less at the end. I mean, we're talking a steep grade hill. And at that moment, I just went, ah, and I slowed down. Why? Because I didn't want to face that hill. When you lose hope, you lose energy. I lost the hope of catching my son and was dreading the hardship of that hill. 
Paul doesn't want the Thessalonians to lose energy. And so he wants to breathe into their life a hope that will give them the energy that they need for a Christian life. And so that's why after saying, you will be always with the Lord, what does he say in verse 18? Encourage one another with these words. There's something about that reality of our hope is to be with Jesus that gives you energy, that gives you encouragement, that strengthens you from the inside out. And he doesn't just say it at the end of chapter 4. Look down in verse 11 of chapter 5. He says, again, therefore encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. Paul is saying that, that this reality, this hope that you have, that you get to be with Jesus, is something that is useful to you to encourage yourself, that gives you energy, that helps you to make it through life. It's something that is useful for those that are around you, that you can use to encourage each other, to help them in the hardships of life. Have you ever played Red Rover? I hope you have. It was one of my favorite games to, to do as a child. If, if you remember Red Rover, it's where you have two sides kind of holding hands, right? And what would happen is one side would say, Red Rover, Red Rover, send Kurt right over. And then Kurt would come running across and try to break through that line of people holding hands. Now, it's probably not safe. Several arms have probably been broken through this, but it's tremendously fun. Because the goal is to hold that line so that you can capture Kurt and bring him to your side. Now that word that Paul uses for encourage, that's the idea behind it. To capture someone and bring them into what you are saying. Paul wants us to be captured by a hope in Jesus. And to capture people with the word that, don't you know that you get to be with Jesus forever? Don't you know that your reality, your destiny is to be with him? And don't you know that that means that the best is still to come? The best is still to come. If your greatest hope, if the thing that you want the most is to be with Jesus, you get it. You'll have it. If that's your greatest hope, then that means that there's always something on the horizon that you have to look forward to. But a lot of times we live for different hopes, don't we? A lot of times what, what leads us to despair, what leads us to cynicism is, is the hopes that we have that are, are so much more fragile. And the hopes of our health, the hopes of our politics, the hopes of our culture, the hopes of our 401k, the hopes of our career, the hopes of our dreams and our visions for our own life. Those things lead us to despair. Those things cause us to say that, that maybe the best was behind me. Maybe that time with the kids, maybe that time in college, maybe that time when I was useful in my job, maybe those were the best years. But what does that say was your real hope? That those things your real hope. But Paul is saying, listen, if you put your hope in Jesus, if that's what you really want the most is to be with him, this is a hope that will never disappoint. And so that means that we can always be encouraged in whatever circumstance we find ourselves, that the best is yet to come. That even in the, the, the most dreadful, dreary circumstance, that we know that something better is still to come. 
But even in the, the greatest, most joyful moment, we don't have to think, ah, oh, this is great and I hate when it'll be gone because I'll never get it again. But we can think even in the greatest, most joyful moment that something better is still to come, to be with Jesus. And Paul wants the Thessalonians to have this mentality that, that what gives them encouragement, what gives them strength is the hope that they get to always be with the Lord. And this is a hope that we know that will not disappoint because of the way that he speaks about this hope, that this is a hope that comes. Now, the first time that I ever like gave my heart to Jesus, that I prayed a, a prayer for inviting Jesus into my heart, happened with flannel board in the first grade. Do you remember flannel board? Some of you may, some of you may not have any idea, but it was basically PowerPoint before computers. It was this board made of flannel and there'd be little cut out flannel figures that you would stick up on the board to kind of like illustrate a story or tell a story. And my first grade teacher, Mrs. Grovenstein, was teaching about the idea of the rapture. And I remember her pulling a little character off of the flannel board, lifting him up into the air and then leaving behind someone on the flannel board and saying, you don't want to be that person left behind, do you? In my little first grade mind and heart was like, I don't want to be left alone. What do I have to do so that I'm not left alone? Pray? Okay, I'll do it. But I think the interesting thing about this passage is Paul is not talking about that kind of direction of Jesus. He doesn't want us to think about Jesus' return even with that sense of fear or trepidation as much as he wants us to have a sense of joy and delight at the idea of Jesus coming. Notice the direction that he speaks about Jesus. He talks about Jesus returning, Jesus coming, that Jesus isn't taking people up to heaven, but he's coming from heaven down to this earth. The direction of Jesus is one of coming, not leaving, coming. And he talks in this way about us meeting Jesus in the air as he's returning. And that word there, meet, is a word used to describe in Greek culture an important meeting. It's what you would use to describe like a, an important meeting with a dignitary, like meeting with the mayor, the town manager. And he's talking about this important meeting of, of Jesus in the air as Jesus returns to also bring in a concept from the Old Testament. And that's that the way that a king would return would be to gather the people outside of the city so that they could meet him as he returns to celebrate his victory. They could meet him to, as he returns to come into his rightful throne, his rightful kingdom, and celebrate with him the victory that he won on behalf of his people. And so the way that Paul is describing this return of Jesus isn't this idea of kind of grabbing and going, but that he's coming back in a loud way, a celebratory way, a rejoicing way, a king who has conquered his enemies so that he could bring victory to his people. And he's picturing the people of God all joining with him in a celebratory way, rejoicing as they come with him back into his rightful city, his rightful kingdom, his rightful throne. And Paul wants us to see that this is what it means for Jesus to come. This is why it gives us a sense of hope to be with him, that he comes as the conquering king. He comes as the one who has defeated all of his enemies. 
He comes, as we sing at Christmas, to, to make his blessing go as far as the curse is found. Jesus returns. Jesus comes with joy because he has won the victory for his people. And Paul tells us as he's coming, it says, it'll descend with a cry of command. Now, we don't know what the cry of command is. We don't know what word Jesus necessarily will say, but we know that he's speaking with that sense of authority. And it goes on to say that the voice of the archangel, uh, in other words, God's messengers, God's rulers are there with him. The army is there with him after the, the victory won with the king. And then it says, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. Now that it's an interesting idea, the sound of the trumpet of God. Because one of the times that we see a trumpet sound in the Bible is at the year of Jubilee. The year of Jubilee is this interesting uh, time in the, the kingdom of Israel where after a season of sevens, the land is supposed to have a Sabbath and, and all those who were enslaved were supposed to be freed from their slavery and all land that was sold to someone, was returned back to their rightful owners, and everything is basically restored back to the way it should be. Complete do-over, in a sense. A full restoration. And it was supposed to be practiced in the kingdom of Israel every 49th year. And that trumpet would blast, and when that happened, if you were a slave, you were free. If you had to sell your land because of poverty, it was restored back to you. Everything was put back in the right way. And Paul is saying that when Jesus comes back, that trumpet sounds because that's what Jesus is doing. It's the eternal year of Jubilee where everything that is wrong is put back to right. Everything that is broken is fixed. All injustices are healed. All poverty is done. Death is defeated. Sin and its slavery is done with. The king returns and puts everything back the way it should be. And this is why we can have a hope in Jesus' returning that gives us encouragement because it tells us that when Jesus comes, he will heal. That when Jesus comes, he will restore. That when Jesus comes, he will fix all that is broken. And so it's a good picture for us of how we know that the best is yet to come. Because all the things that you are despairing about are all the things that he will repair. All the things that you are worrying about are all the things that he will heal. So there is nothing that you will have in his kingdom that will be that little nagging thing in the back of your mind that keeps you up at night. There's nothing that you will have in his kingdom that'll weigh you down with sadness or anxiety. Because when he comes, he heals, he restores, he frees. He brings his people into the eternal jubilee where everything is as it should be. And when this is your hope, don't you see how that can give you encouragement? To know that in whatever situation you find yourself in right now, no matter how bleak and how dark, that situation is not going to last. 
that situation is not going to endure. But what will endure is Jesus and his rule. What will endure is Jesus and his faithfulness and his love for you. Paul wants us to understand the the picture, the reality of what it means for us to to live with Jesus so that that is a hope that guides us in our life, so that we are always looking forward to what will come. And when that is your hope, that's something that gives you a joy that can never be taken away because in whatever circumstance that you find yourself where, where despair or cynicism begins to rear its ugly head, you can look back to it and say, yes, but Jesus will come. Yes, it is hard now, but my king is going to come. Yes, you may be powerful now, but there is one who is more powerful who is coming to defeat you. There's nothing in this life that Jesus cannot defeat. And we know this reality because he has already defeated our greatest enemies of sin and death and the cross. The cross reminds us of of the fact that he has already won the war. And he won the war at the cost of his own life. And in that moment of his death, as darkness descends upon the whole earth, as the ground shakes, as he took onto himself the wrath that we deserve, the removal of God's goodness that we deserve, he was winning for us the battle so that our reality would not be darkness. Our reality would not be a lack of God's goodness. Our reality would not be a sense that the world is always going to shake, but that our reality would be Easter. It's interesting that after Jesus died, it tells us that people came out of the grave, that people saw dead people come out, which is a crazy thing to to think about. But why did that happen? It's because Jesus already defeated death and sin so that even then there's a little glimpse of what we have to come, that people literally came back to the dead just because of what Jesus had done. And that tells us in that glimpse of what we have still to look forward to, that what Jesus already did is where we will go because we are even so people. And even just as he defeated death, defeated sin, rose from the dead, was embraced by the love of the Father, even so, that is our destiny. Not because of what you do, but because of what Jesus has done for you. Not because of how you have held on to Jesus, but because of how he is holding on to you. And this gives us a hope that gives us constant courage. This gives us a joy that cannot be taken away because our hope and our joy is not rooted in us, but is rooted in him. Paul wants us to see the hope that still comes so that day in, day out, we will be encouraged by that picture. Day in, day out, we encourage one another with that picture, which is why the end of the Bible points us to that hope. In the book of Revelation, chapter 20, in the, the last, in the second to last verse of the Bible, Paul says that he who testifies to these things says, which is Jesus, 
Surely I am coming soon. And then John responds, Amen, come Lord Jesus. This is the way that Christians should always be. Hear the voice of Jesus say, Don't you know I'm coming for you? And respond back, Amen, come Lord Jesus. Trust me, I'm coming, he says. I want to be with you. And we say, yeah, I want to be with you too. And as we reflect on that, meditate on that, hold to that, it buries down that hope deep in our heart. A hope that will not disappoint. A hope that gives us joy. A hope that encourages us. Be encouraged. Your Savior is coming for you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the love of Jesus and the way that he wants to be with us and the way that he will come again and set everything right. We pray that in our moments of despair that the hope of our Savior would shine through and that a deeper joy would strengthen us to know that we will always be with you. We pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen.